everyone, and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs. I am Andrew's younger daughter, and on today's show, I am going to be reading Chapter 9 of my granddad's book, Around the Horn, by Frank Downs. Chapter 9 includes New Year's Day 1945, Holland, Luftwaffe attack airfields, Lucky Escape, Brussels. New Year's Day 1945 was a day never to be forgotten. Two days after Christmas, we had left Brussels for a tour of forward airfields in Belgium and Holland, airfields which were giving close support to the British Second Army. The personnel on these airfields, having little in the way of entertainment, welcomed us warmly as we gave impromptu concerts during their limited leisure hours. In a variety of venues, hangars, mess huts and even in their sleeping quarters, we would form groups varying from a five-piece band to full ensemble. Often aircrew would come directly from operational activities, sitting in full kit to relax and drink whilst we played. They were marvellous men, friendly and almost always cheerful. Quite incredible when one realised the strain they were under each day. It was on one such airfield that we found ourselves on New Year's Eve 1944-45. There had been a lull in the fighting on this stretch of the Belgian-Dutch border for a few hours and a party was arranged in the mess. A great time was had by all and after the traditional welcome to 1945 we played on and drank till the early hours before retiring to our hut, tired, happy and rather the worse for drink. There was a hard frost and the aerodrome was covered with snow and ice. As fully clothed, we bedded down on the cold, hard floor of the hut. We slept soundly for a few hours, but as dawn was breaking, all hell broke loose around us. The Luftwaffe had chosen January 1st, 1945 to mount an all-out offensive against airfields in the Low Countries, and this was one of the targets. Messerschmitt 262 jet fighters roared in low and fast and created havoc, and many aircraft on the ground were destroyed. Black ice on the runway prevented any of our fighters getting into the air, and the enemy aircraft, besides destroying aircraft on the ground, machine-gunned the aerodrome personnel at will. As each wave came in, we lay face down on the floor, tin hats covering our heads, praying they would miss our hut. Our prayers were answered, but there were many casualties elsewhere. Those minutes were quite terrifying for us all, except Bill Overton. Whether it was his faith, he was a salvationist, or his extraordinary temperament, I shall never know, but he stood there before an open window surveying the scene, giving a running commentary as aircraft on the ground burned furiously, saying, This is a fine way to run a bloody air force! was not success for the Luftwaffe, however. In fact, their attacks ended in eventual disaster. History records that instead of returning to their own bases immediately the attacks were over, their pilots continued exultantly to circle the stricken airfields. This gave British and American fighters from airfields which were not immobilised time to assemble and attack. By tarrying too long over the danger areas, they eventually lost 364 aircraft out of a total of 800.
Based in Breda, a few days later, we had another alarming experience while returning to base from a concert at an airfield close to the Dutch Maas River. We completely lost our bearings and had no idea in which direction we were heading. Through numerous villages, all of which in the blacked out countryside looked the same, we came to an abrupt halt in a muddy lane seemingly miles from anywhere. From the rear of our troop carrying truck, we could hear motorbike engines revving and angry voices competing with the noise. Who the bloody hell are you? RAF band, sir. What the f hell are you doing up here, for Christ's sake? Get out of the way! Yes, sir, right away, sir, came the unmistakable voice of our driver, whereupon we reversed through a gap in the adjoining field. Almost immediately we overheard the tremendous roar of aircraft passing over, whilst in front of us we witnessed an endless convoy of troops in full battle gear with river crossing equipment advancing in the direction from which we had come. We had actually run smack into a second army advance towards the Dutch Mars. The aircraft above them were on their way to bomb the river crossings. The noise of the bombardment was deafening and we spent a few miserable hours awaiting daylight before making our way back to Breda. We had an experience a few days later which was both alarming and, on reflection, amusing. Three of us were walking along the snowbound perimeter of another airfield, counting the number of doodlebugs V1s flying overhead. It was a continual procession as these ghastly missiles chugged along on their way to Antwerp area, where they were landing at the rate of one every 12 minutes of the day. Brave pilots were attacking them periodically and attempting to shoot them down or tipping them up with their wingtips when above us, a missile's engine cut out and began to descend. Instinctively, we dived towards the dike at the side of the path, lay flat and waited for the explosion. In seconds, we heard the spluttering sound, somewhat like a huge motorbike engine above us. It had restarted and was heading back in the opposite direction, and eventually it disappeared from view. An experienced pilot told us later that faulty gyro mechanisms were responsible for many such instances. The more the better as far as we were concerned. The organisation and planning of our tour of these forward aerodromes was in the main extremely good, though there was an occasion during the Rundstedt Offensive when we arrived at a deserted airfield. Deserted except for a motorcycle dispatch rider, who was amazed to see us. What on earth are you doing up here? he said incredulously. We've come to give you some music, was the reply. Music? he bawled as he revved his machine. Get back to your base as fast as you can. There's nobody here to play to. They left six hours ago and I'm on my way to join them. He did not need telling twice and reflected on the old music hall song. I took my harp to a party and nobody asked me to play as we sped off on our return journey. Returning to our Brussels headquarters at the end of the tour was a welcome break. A hot bath at the splendid Montgomery Club and a change of clothes for the first time in a month was sheer bliss. Laundry facilities in the RAF were to me truly amazing. In all the touring we did in England and particularly abroad, I never knew them to be less than super efficient. No matter where we were, each station had a remarkable system of efficient collection and delivery. In England it was a weekly service where one filled in a card, ticking off the appropriate garments sent, and a week later one would pick them up. 
I do not recall ever experiencing any deficiency throughout the whole of my service life. Even abroad on tour, the system worked unfailingly. Whoever planned it should have received a medal. Awaiting us on our return to Brussels, together with our laundry, was a letter by hand from our younger brother Tim, a signalman in the Royal Navy. Tim was involved in the building of the Mulberry Harbour, and his vessel carried the specialists who sank the line of ships in preparation for that operation, on D-Day plus one. According to his letter, his ship was now patrolling the Scheldt estuary between Flushing and Antwerp, and as he had a couple of days' leave in Antwerp, he had travelled to Brussels to see us. Leonard and I were terribly disappointed to find he had visited our headquarters the day before our arrival. Unfortunately, we did not meet again till the end of the war. Tim was, and indeed still is, a lovable character. Kind, generous, and with a great sense of humour. He was three years younger than me. I remember when he was a very small boy, he had a period of saying things backwards. For instance, he would ask not for a piece of bread and jam, but for a piece of jam with some butter on it. He fell down a hill whilst we were playing on the local common one day, came home and told mother he had hilled down the tumble. There were many other instances of this peculiar trait well before he started school. One other endearing memory I have is the occasion when he and his friend Nobby Clark decided to hold a raffle, the prize being their pet white rabbit. Many tickets were sold, mainly to relatives and friends. On the day of the draw they officiated and drew the winning ticket for themselves, much to the consternation of all concerned. Now back in Brussels, I had the good fortune to meet, after a broadcast, the principal horn player of the Orchestre National of Belgium, who invited me to the conservatoire where he was the horn professor. As a result of this, he very kindly offered to give me lessons free of charge. He was extremely pro-British and over a period of time invited my brother and me to meals at his house, where he recounted some of the horrors of the Nazi occupation. The National Orchestra continued to function during this time, not with any enthusiasm, but of necessity. He explained they were used as a morale booster. Several members of the orchestra were actually in the resistance movement, we were told, and were active throughout the occupation, particularly in the field of sabotage. Unfortunately, owing to duties, I was unable to have regular lessons, but on the occasions when it was possible, I found them most rewarding. We attended as many of the orchestra's public concerts as possible at the Palais des Beaux-Arts, including a very memorable one when the orchestra gave a stunning performance of the Shostakovich Leningrad Symphony. The emotional impact of the occasion was tremendous and understandable as Leningrad had been liberated on January the 27th, 1944, after terrible losses. The deprivation of its people had been appalling. This was the first performance in Europe of this memorable symphony. End of chapter 9. To end this podcast, I am going to play Movement 2 from Andrew Down's Centenary Fire Dances for Symphony Orchestra. I believe that this work conjures up the nostalgia, humour, sadness, sense of adventure, and fear in my granddad's text, as well as the explosions that are depicted by the percussion section, which was originally written to go with fireworks. This work was commissioned in association with Dragonfire Limited by the City of Birmingham for its centenary celebrations 1989. It was performed by the Birmingham Conservatoire Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jonathan Delmar alongside a grand firework display in Cannon Hill Park.
there were about 20,000 people at the event. This recording was made by the same musicians a few months beforehand. <laughs> 